0: Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate. And it's here where I'm gonna delve into the details of their journey along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today, and as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire, They're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to Ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at ceincanada.com. At that is CEO at REIN Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends, or your family, and with people you know, or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest today, Jules McKenzie, is a longtime Ray member and real estate investor. I've gotten to know Jules quite well over the years. And in this episode, Jules shares some of his path and lessons learned on his journey to the life he lives today and his vision for the future. From very humble beginnings, Jules' focus, his tenacity, and his commitment to creating his best life alongside his wife Angie and their family is truly apparent in anything and everything he sets his mind to. He has an unshakable commitment to his health and fitness through CrossFit and to being a leader as a police officer with a career that spans over 29 years, including 11 years as a member of OPP, before joining the Rama Police Service, where he has trained to become a respected leader and a top performer. Jules recently gained some celebrity on the Aboriginal People's Television Network as a camera crew followed he and his team to produce season two of their hit series, Tribal Police Files. Jules began investing in residential real estate in the regions of Aurelia and Barrie in 2002, and followed a very foundational and proven range strategy, which was of buying, renting, and holding a portfolio of cash flowing properties. He and his wife, Angie, who manages their portfolios, have built their real estate primarily by attracting and building relationships with joint venture capital partners. Today, Jules shares his knowledge, some lessons learned, experience gained, I guess, by taking action and investing in real estate, including his view of what it takes to attract capital investors. Listen in, enjoy the show. Jules McKenzie, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire podcast. Excited to have you on the show. Welcome. Hey, Patrick, thanks for having me, man. Hey, so Jules, we're going to get to work right away because uh, I know you've got a lot to share. We've got a lot of things to talk about for listeners a little bit of background jules i've known you for what gosh 10 years for sure hey you've been oh way over 10
1: years i think i met you at a rain meeting in uh, toronto in 2004
0: oh gee has it been that wow that's like that's like 15 years yeah that
1: was before you became uh the the chief executive officer
0: so we're we were younger slimmer better looking back then you know all those things at least i was (laughs) <laughs> You're doing well though. So Jules, let's get to work. As I say, why don't we start the best place for me to start on these podcasts is always. Why don't we open up the door by kind of giving me a 60 second elevator pitch when somebody walks up and says, Jules, what do you do?
1: Okay. I say my name is Jules McKenzie. Uh, I invest in uh, residential real estate, uh, small uh, multifamily properties, condominium townhomes, and condominiums in uh, the city of Aurelia, and I help investors to do that by uh, having them put up the money, and I put up my time and effort to look after managing all the details.
0: So on the real estate side of it, you're in fact, right now, you're in that phase where, and have been probably for a while, where you're attracting capital through joint venture partnerships and investing in real estate that way. Is that correct?
1: Yes, I have. uh, But I would say since probably 2015, I've kind of taken my foot off the gas pedal uh, we achieved some uh, significant wealth and uh, through refinancing and selling some properties of paying out subsequent investors. And uh, we bought our dream home. And I, like I said, I got comfortable and kind of backed off a little bit. I'm getting close to retirement. My job, uh, my profession, I, if you will, is a police officer with the Rama Police Service over by Casino Rama and the Rama First Nation. And... I got about four years to go in that. I'm at, I'm in my 29th year. Actually, I'm in my 30th year. I got 29 completed years in policing. Period. I was like, wow. Wow. Uh, 11 of those with OPP all over the province doing various things. But uh, within the last 20 years, I've been with uh, Rama First Nation, and it's uh, it's been really interesting, re- real fun. Um, I've been a rain member since 2003. I'm married with uh, three adult children. One is still at home, which is fine. And uh, Ant and I uh, live here in our our beautiful little dream home, and we're raising our uh, our little dog Peaches. Um, <laughs>
0: how's that? Okay. So, what kind of dog did you get, by the way?
1: It's a it's a cocker poodle thingy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's like a golden retriever and half poodle mix. Yeah it's got the best temperament of all and it really lives up to its golden retriever uh, thing it wants to play all the time yeah so if i'm having a bad day man i just let that dog turn it around for me
0: <laughs> that's excellent <laughs> so okay so you're a real estate investor but you know we talk about you know i want to go back a little bit about your career so you were with uh, opp ontario provincial police that's correct now, in the First Nations world, are, what is what does that entail in terms of territory or what you cover in, and why First Nations?
1: Okay, um, so to begin with, I am a First Nations uh, person. I'm Algonquin Indian from uh, Western Quebec. My father was the chief on our little uh, Indigenous uh, reservation. I have to say Indigenous because I know a lot of the Indians are real sensitive about being called Indians. Uh, I'm not, but uh, that's a whole for another topic. Um, I am interested in uh, First Nations uh, uh, governance and self determination and independence. Uh, and I got that interest from my dad. My dad was a chief in our reservation, like I mentioned, uh, for many years. And he lost out and he didn't really have, um, I guess, a backup plan. Or a Plan B. I guess he thought he was going to be uh, the leader on our little territory forever, and that kind of left me wondering where I could go from here. Not that I was I was giving up on my dad or, or moving, but he said, uh, "Son, this is the richest, freest country in the world. Get off the reserve and do something with your life." And I really took that to heart. He was a World War II veteran, and that was my first uh, insights into uh, you know what this country and what uh, our people are uh, kind of all about.
0: Now, uh, as I'm to do, I'll, I'll bounce around quite a lot here, but you know, tell me a little bit. Now, you started investing in real estate, and what year did you f- start to buy your first property?
1: So uh, I think that was 2003. We bought... Uh, no, I wasn't 2003. Sorry. It was 2001. I saw a late-night TV infomercial for uh, an American uh, education company coming up to Toronto to teach uh, real estate courses, and I jumped on board, got interested in that. We bought our first two properties run down and didn't really have a sustainable plan to renovate those properties and rent them out. So we got into a fair bit of trouble with those properties. I had maxed out my credit cards line of credit. In one of the uh, initial uh, teachings, they taught us how to uh, call our credit companies and increase our limits. And then uh, after that uh, portion was done, the next portion was to upsell us on courses and whatnot, that uh, a lot of the techniques and strategies didn't really apply to our Canadian market. And I found myself in a a lot of financial uh, hurt. I was about to give up, Angie at the time told me that's it, like this was a bad idea. There was a uh, mentor that I was kind of following. He followed the uh, rich dad, poor dad uh, methodology and philosophy on things. And he uh, hosted these cash flow games in Toronto And he invited me to a conference uh, put on by a Canadian author, Raymond Aaron, who had a guest who was uh, talking about opening a rain chapter in Toronto. And I I said, well, what's rain? Like, what are you talking about? And he said, well, it's Canadian-specific real estate investing. And it was a particular Saturday near the end of August. And by that time, you know, I had so much debt and we had vacant properties and I didn't really... Know if I should go or if I shouldn't go, and I just got inspired. You know, I said, "Well, it's got to be—it's got to be a Canadian-specific pitch on how to do this investing thing." And I told Angie I was going to go. She said she was not. She told me to leave the credit cards, and I was not to sign anything, do anything, or agree to join anything unless I checked with her first. And I went to uh, that thing, and that's where I, I met uh, Don Campbell. I actually met Don Campbell in the back of the room, and I thought he was just one of the attendees. And I remember giving him my business card, telling him that I'm a real estate investor. And, you know, he got up and started talking about, uh, you know, the top 10 towns to invest in in Ontario. And I remember thinking, well, at least I know where I should have been investing. He talked about uh, the Junction in Toronto. I had a good laugh about that. He talked about Hamilton. And I was like, Hamilton, really? And uh, he talked about Durham region, uh, Kitchener, Waterloo, Cambridge, You know, places like that. And then he said, if you want to invest in the number one place in Ontario, you have to go to the Barry and Aurelia Cinco Shores. And I said, what did he say? Did he say what I thought he said? And the guy next to me said, yeah, he said, uh, Barry Aurelia is top place to invest. And I bounced out of my chair and I was hooping and hollering, cheering around. And I remember Don looking from stage. And I'm thinking, if you want to learn anything about those areas, you can look to that maniac jumping around in the back of the room. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: and, uh, it, it was really like, I, I was just so hope filled and, uh, not that, um, I joined rain right away and not that we didn't have to endure some financial hardship because we did, we had to make some tough choices and let some things go and do something about our debt. And, uh, but once we got, uh, involved with the, uh, rain philosophy and system on investing, I learned it. I adopted it. I had it ingrained in my brain and my soul. And once we started following those techniques, that's when things really started to turn around for us.
0: Now, did you uh, did you remember to phone Angie and say, Angie, I'm thinking about becoming a
1: Absolutely Brazilian. not. <laughs> <laughs> I came home and I said, I joined Brain. And uh, uh, it was a pretty quiet evening after that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she didn't. Uh, she wasn't on board, but uh, it was probably a couple of months. She came out to uh, one of the rain meetings, and uh, she said, oh, "Okay, I, I see what you're you're so excited about, and uh, I understand now." But uh, she initially wasn't on board, and of course, me being me, just uh, took the executive decision and joined.
0: You know, it's been uh, it's been fun to kind of follow you know from a distance your journey, and and of course, I've had many conversations with you and Angie over the years, and to watch your journey, see the challenges that you've faced, have and being able to watch you get through them and where you are today. Hence, you know, the reason that you're on the show, because really you are, you and Angie are really truly poster childs for individuals who invest in real estate, follow the system, got educated, put in the time, faced the challenges, took it on full on and embraced it and kept working at it and working through it. And, and here you are today. So um I'm always uh, really proud to uh know that I know you and 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 have you in the audience is always great when we're uh, when we're at stage you always bring a lot of energy to the room. So let's go back a little bit now. So that's kind of cool so you've built your portfolio and we'll get to that in a minute, but I want to go back to when you were having the conversation with your dad who was at that time chief of that particular reserve and he says, "Jules, get off the reserve." Yeah. Now, how old were you when he had that conversation with you?
1: I was uh, probably about uh, 17, 18 years old. And he had uh, been defeated in uh, an election on First Nations back then, at least. They had uh, elections every two years. And he hung on to power for 18 years. So he'd been around for quite a long time. That's all I remember him as. And uh, it was one of those things. My mother, unfortunately, had passed away about a year or two before that and uh he suggested maybe i should uh you know get off the reserve and, and do something with myself and uh I, I remember spending many many evenings looking out the window at the end of the road wondering what was on the other side and what could be on the other side of that road for me uh back then our our first station didn't have uh, paved roads some of the houses didn't even have running water and i i you know, because my dad was the chief, I was picked on a lot because he had uh, he had a population of around two two hundred to three hundred people that he had to service, and he only got a CMHC budget for thirty houses, so he had to make a lot of tough decisions back then. And you know, growing up on in that environment, I brew I bore the brunt of a lot of uh, a lot of uh, you know those tough decisions that he had to to make. Going to school in uh, Roman Catholic, Roman French Catholic, uh, Timiskaming, Quebec, uh, we were we were picked on. There was a lot of there was a lot of this between uh, the people in our little community and the uh, town of Timiskaming, and uh, you know, FLQ crisis from uh, Quebec was still fresh in everyone's mind. Quebec was about to separate from the rest of the country, and it was just a real volatile time all around. And at the time, I thought, this got to be a better place and a better way, you know, to uh, get a living and get a life. And I left. I did go live with my sister in the Ottawa area and uh, basically finished up my high school down there. Went to college and university in in Sudbury. Uh,
0: <laughs>
1: I joke about it, but I took Native Studies and I got a B.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's it. <laughs> how ironic is that hey yeah. <laughs> that's funny now how was it when you moved off the reserve because I don't profess to know a lot about indigenous and you know the what life is on the reservation but I have had you know I've actually had staff work with me that were indigenous and actually shared stories with what it was like for them where they actually felt pretty lost when they got off the reserve as dysfunctional as the reserve might've been for them. It was still home. It was, and when they came out into the, you know, like you say, what's on the other, at the other end of that road, you know, what is it out there in this other world? And there was, you know, I got, uh, you know, I, people have shared with me that they actually had to come back, readjust, get their wits about them before they moved back, you know, to back out into the other world. It was a real adjustment period. Did you, did you happen to go through that? I remember I'm uh, I'm reminded
1: of uh, a time when I first uh, moved to Ottawa and my sister was showing me how to take uh, the bus with a bus pass. I had to take um, the bus and uh, with a bus pass and I had to learn that whole thing. And I remember for the first time taking it by myself and getting off and walking down the street in uh, downtown Ottawa and literally trying to say hello to every single person walking on that street. Kind of like that scene from crocodile Dundee when, you know, he (laughs) he went on his
0: walkabout or something
1: (laughs) (laughs) on his first walkabout. That's kind of like how I was. And uh, yeah, it was really socially awkward. There's so many people, so many tall buildings. And uh, how do I fit into this and what part do I play? And, you know, how could I possibly be a part of all this, uh, sophistication is how I felt back then. But eventually I did, I did, uh, make some friends in, in high school at, uh, Brookville High in the South end of Ottawa. And, you know, in particular, my, my buddy, Bo. we're still friends today, even though, you know, we live, uh, miles and miles apart.
0: How was your, now had your sister been in Ottawa for a while? So she had, she's, I'm assuming older than you and had moved.
1: Yeah yeah so I'm uh, I'm the youngest of five I was a bit of a surprise for my parents uh, they were much much on in years uh, when they had me and uh, my sister Martha was 10 years older than me and she was just uh, finishing up her education at Carleton University in Ottawa when uh, I went to, to live with her for a while
0: so in your background, and you chose police services. And did, was there a was there a specific reason you went that route? How did you end up in you know on OPP?
1: So two things. Um, just before I left uh, uh, Temiskaming School, they had uh, these uh, provincial aptitude tests to let you know what your talents are, what you could do for a career. And one of the things that came up, or two of the things that came up, was uh, either a security guard or a police officer. So I always had that in the back of my mind. And uh, when I went to Cameron College, I took Native Studies, and then I took uh, one or two semesters of the Native Child Family Care Worker Program to be a counselor because I was going to help my people. And uh, at the time, I was, uh, I was into martial arts. I was into uh, physical fitness at Goals Gym in Sudbury. And I didn't even realize it. Uh, I saw an article in the Toronto star, the OPP were looking to hire and looking for candidates for the recruitment program. And I asked the guys that I was working out with, I said, well, how's that OPP thing? And he said, well, we're all OPP guys. And there was about uh, three or four guys that I worked out with great big, burly fit guys. And I said, well, we work for the OPP. I think you'd be great. You should really consider that, you know, that'd be a great uh, career for career path for you. And, uh, honest to goodness, it was probably about six months. I was on my way to the OPP Academy at that time. It was in Brampton and it was like, I was born to do that job. I was, uh, I had all the aptitudes. I had all the physical fitness attributes. I had the, uh, the, uh, ability to perform well under stress. So I passed those tests, the psychological tests, <laughs> surprisingly to me, I passed very well. And, uh, yeah, it was just uh, one of those those things, and I got in at a time, in particular, that they were hiring visible minorities and First Nations people. But uh, you know, I let my record speak for for itself. I mean, I I got in to the regular force. I didn't go the First Nations route. I didn't go under any special program. I competed with my peers that were in the recruitment program, and I and I managed to get uh, full time.
0: Now, cause you, you're, how tall are you? You're six, three, six, six, 6'4". Six, I was four. Six,
1: four. I think I'm starting to shrink now. I'm yeah. little over
0: 50. Yeah. Aren't we all right. Okay. <laughs> so you got into OPP. When did you decide to go back and, and uh, get on the reserve as a, as a officer on the reserve?
1: So um, I joined the OPP in 89 and I started up in Armstrong, which is north of Thunder Bay from there, I, uh, I was there for two years. I went for two years at the back to Ottawa in the Ottawa Canada Detachment. Uh, my father took sick, and uh, I thought, well, maybe I could transfer to North Bay, which is only about a 45-minute drive from my home, and I could uh, help my dad. He was, you know, he wasn't that old. Like, he was 76, 77. He was still cutting his own wood and doing those kind of things. He had a heart, heart attack. So I asked for a transfer to the to that detachment. Of course, they uh, accommodated me and sent me to Kirkland Lake detachment, which is about two and a half hours north of North Bay. <laughs> so uh, I transferred there, and I, I, I immediately fell in love with that town. And I was up there for five years. Uh, having I said all that to say this, I started coaching a a, uh, a young officer who was a member of the Metachewan First Nation and part of the Anishinaabewski Regional Police Service, a regional police service that polices First Nations in northeastern Ontario. This individual had such difficulty dealing with his own family members, and I could totally relate because it was a small community just like the one I grew up on, and he was so frustrated and bitter and, you know, pissed off most of the time and he uh, showed up at my house. He was into his, uh, early in his career, probably about a year, maybe a year and a half. He gave me a box, cardboard box with his uh, duty belt and his uniforms and his police boots and his badge. And he said, here, I've quit, I've had it. And uh, earlier that day, my Detachment Commander, Don Gord, was asking me about going down to Rama. Back then they called it the Mjikkanin First Nation. And he said that uh, OPP has accepted a contract to start a police service for a First Nation down there. And they're looking for coach officers, training officers, and supervisors. Maybe this is where you need to go next. And uh, I, I read the fax. I took the fax home. And I remember when Tom was backing out of my driveway after giving me all his uh, use, use of force and uniforms, I ran into my house, grabbed the fax, ran down to the end of the driveway, and I stopped him. I said, whoa, stop. I said, Okay, so the career is not working out well, policing your own community. But maybe this would be a good career path for you. And he said, "Well, what's this?" And I told him about Mendicentin First Nation, where that. And I said, "Well, it's just on the east side of Aurelia, on Lake Kuchaching." Didn't probably didn't say it like that because I'm not as I wasn't as well versed about it. In any event, he said, "I'll go down there and check it out if you will come with me." So I went down with him. And uh, looked around at the place. It was gorgeous. Uh, between Lake Simcoe and Lake Kuchiching. the Casino Rama was uh, freshly constructed. And they were just implementing this police service. And I thought, oh, geez, forget Tommy. I'm going to apply to this frigging place, man. It looks awesome. And uh, that's how I ended up. I, I coached uh, four guys after I transferred there in 1998 as an OPP. Under two years, I think I completed training for four officers and after having a near nervous breakdown doing that work, they said, hey, we like your style. We'd like you to consider working for us full-time. So that was members of the police board and the uh, chief of the First Nation. And uh, I said, oh, well, you see, I have a safe, secure government job with the provincial government. What could you possibly offer me? And uh, they said, well, what would you like? And I didn't realize at the time, but 70% of the police budget comes directly from the revenues at Casino Rama, and they can they could I could have asked for the sun and the moon, and I would have got it. So I said, well, I want wage parity with what I'm getting with uh, OPP. I want 100% pension and benefits, and they said, great. When can you start? <laughs> and I called uh, Angie at home, and I said, how do you like the area, hon? And she says, I think it's great. I said, good, because we might be here a while. I'm going to accept the full-time position with uh, the Mnjikkanen police. And that's kind of how we uh, we ended up uh, staying here. And uh, I have not regretted it uh, one bit. I do run into my peers with OPP and uh, some of those guys are, are retiring or retired. Some of those guys have ascended up the ranks into a superintendent, chief superintendent. And that's, that's great for them. But uh, I kind of like the grassroots, you know, i'm a I'm an old country cop, and uh you know I, I like i like people i like uh solving problems i like dealing with uh, i like the adrenaline rush that comes with policing and rama it's uh it can be ninety six percent pure boredom but four percent pure adrenaline rush and I kind of like those things
0: so when we you know when we look at seemingly ordinary, you know there's never a journey that is the same. everybody's journey is different, and what is seemingly ordinary often creates the challenges that drives us to be extraordinary. And I don't want to step over that little point of nervous breakdown, almost feeling like you were, or maybe diagnosed. I don't know. We'll get to that. Um, So because you're feeling the pressure and, and, and I wanted to, let's just pause there for a second and actually hang out there for a second. Were you actually feeling like you were about to have a nervous breakdown or was there actually a medical, diagnosis going dude you're 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 losing your shit you gotta you know you gotta clean it up slow down whatever or was it just how you were feeling at the time Jules?
1: It was just how I was feeling at the time I mean uh, coaching a, uh, a member training a police officer in general is uh, kind of stressful because you have to be safe out there and you have to make sure that uh, the new officer is not going to violate somebody's rights or abuse their authority And there is a lot of documentation and a lot of accountability built into the system. So, uh, you know, teaching one for a year is uh, a bit stressful because you're you're teaching them how to do the job of policing, and that is enforcing uh, the laws, uh, making sure people are safe. And uh, in addition to that, you want to make sure that they don't abuse their power, that they know what those powers are, and that, uh, you know, they know how to follow Various systems of uh, documentation and accountability. So, coaching one can be a lot in a year. Coaching four in two years is a lot. So, I was just overwhelmed, feeling the pressure. Yeah, I just felt the pressure because, like I said, I didn't. I didn't want to let the OPP down. They wanted to make a good impression with the Rama First Nation. I felt uh, a lot of pressure to to make sure that the officers were able to perform their duties well and. uh, that the individual officers felt confident about how to apply their, their authorities and, uh, make themselves accountable. And, uh, it it was, it was quite a bit.
0: So when did you start? Okay. So got it. Now that was a big stretch for you. You had to learn, you got through it and, um, and that paid off. Now, when did you start investing in real estate? You know, how, how, at what point in your career did you, did you kind of go, I need to, I want more or I want to create more. So what was your motivation for starting to invest in real estate? Where did that even concept idea come Where, from? What the,
1: who, why did you have that crazy idea, Jules? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Where the hell did <laughs> so, that come uh, from? I, I'm going to share something that uh, has has been uncomfortable for me. Uh, I told you at the start of the interview that uh, nothing's going to be off limits. So I'm going to tell you exactly how that uh, I got into that uh, business um, I think I was uh, in my last year with OBP. I showed up, I think it was 1999. I showed up at home after a shift, and there was a guy drawing circles on a whiteboard with a couple, a couple of other well-dressed people sitting in our home, and that was our introduction into the Amway business and network marketing. And uh, that was a whole change in philosophy and ideology for me because I was a I was a company man. I was involved with the police association, which is essentially the police union. And the last thing I was thinking about was uh, becoming an entrepreneur and selling things and doing those kind of things. However, I said to Angie, I said, I will give this two years. She was so passionate and so interested in this. I actually read the books. I actually went to the seminars. I actually listened to the cassette tapes. That's how long I've been around. And uh, I actually started learning uh, about uh, some things. And uh, one of the books was the cashflow quadrant from uh, Robert Kiyosaki. I know everybody talks about rich dad, poor dad, but the book that really changed uh, me was the cash flow quadrant because in the quadrant you have um, on the left side, you have the employee and the self-employed person on the right side, you have the uh, business owner and the investor. And what changed my insight was uh, learning that uh, an employee like me could invest in the I quadrant and start building wealth for the future. And if they wanted some time off, then they could certainly achieve that by going occasionally or more occasionally than not in my case, into the investor quadrant and starting to build wealth. So while I didn't make any money in that uh, Amway business or network marketing, I got um, excited about a TV infomercial, the one I had previously mentioned, and it was about investing in real estate. And I, I wanted to learn about that. It was a a course, a, a free course in uh, Mississauga. I went down to it and I signed up for the three-day all-weekend one. And that's how we started investing uh, in real estate. And it's ironic because... Uh, I did learn some salesmanship skills and how to get out of my comfort zone because I'm, I'm naturally an introvert, but I learned how to cold contact people and make conversation. And it's kind of ironic that, uh, I kind of fell down on my hands with, uh, the real estate investing early on, not, 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 uh, knowing proper, uh, Canadian based techniques for investing. But once I learned and, uh, I heard one of the audios from, uh, an early rain, uh, mentor named Tim Johnson. And he was talking about joint ventures and it was probably only a, maybe a four or five minute segment on how, uh, somebody else puts up the money. You put up your time, you form a joint venture, you invest in the property. And then five or four or five years later, you either sell it or refinance it and return the investor's capital. I grasped that wholeheartedly. And I thought, I know I can do that. And that's uh, how I built, uh, started building wealth in real estate using uh, the RAIN philosophy and uh, proper Canadian strategic uh, ways of investing in uh, the market that I find myself in, in, in Barry and Aurelia.
0: So let's get underneath that a little bit. You know, interestingly, you bring up Robert Kiyosaki's books. Uh, you know, I read both Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which I read early on many years ago now, and then Cashflow Quadrant. Yeah, it was the second book. Yeah, and then and and I'm literally in the middle of reading his latest book, Fake. Very interesting, much deeper, quite a, actually quite a heavy read. I'm I'm doing a combination of read and audio, but you know I really kind of dig what Kiyosaki's been taught. You know, is taught over the year. He's got some really great views of the world, and 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 I, I think he's definitely. I love his the way he he presents, and it's pretty common sense stuff when you when he points it out, right? It's, and he just really does the research. So anyways, I'm a, I'm a fan of Kiyosaki as well. But I want to dig into a little bit is that what is, was it for you? You know, you come off the reserve, you go OPP, you go back, you become, uh, you know, cop on the reserve again. But where was the, you know, where was the tipping point for you? Or what do you think it was that you looked at real estate and said, I wanted, I want more, you know, you had a good job, you have your pension, you have your wage, you know, you and Angie are together, you've got a lot of things going on. What was the difference for you, let's say, than some of the guys that you're working with? Because I'm assuming that not everybody you were working with, for example, was interested in investing in real estate. So what was it for you? What was it for you? Do you think you can nail that?
1: Yeah, I think I can. Those guys are still not interested in investing, contrary to me, uh, you know, yakking about it all the time. I remember... I think it was 1998 after I transferred here, there was a member of the really detachment because we were still lodging our prisoners at a really OPP detachment. He had retired, but he was still working. Mm. So I was like, okay, so I thought you work, you know, this 34, 35 plus years so you can retire and enjoy yourself and walk the beaches of the world and do that kind of thing. And he says, it's just, there's not enough money. He says, I'm making less than half off of my uh, pension. I still got a mortgage, I still got kids in university, and uh, I still got to work. And that, that really, uh, really kind of threw me back a bit because in the OPP, at least, we were taught if you do good and you work hard, you'll uh, retire in 30-plus years and you'll have a great pension and you can do whatever you want to do with the rest of your life and everything's going to be okay. Seeing that member who had started late in life with the OPP – and did his 30 plus years, uh, you know, he's struggling because policing can be rough. It can be, it really is a young man's job. And uh, I think that's what really led me uh, just to seek out more, uh, to be able to do more because I, I had young children and I thought, what kind of legacy am I gonna leave for them? Do I want them to uh, push a cruiser for 30 plus years, get abused by the public and be worried about uh, the accountability that they have to uh, do if they got into policing, and I was like, no, no, there's got to be something better, something, something else that I can leave as a legacy for them, and uh, build a nice lifestyle for for my retirement. So, like I said, that cash flow book really opened my eyes to the possibility of uh, keeping keeping up with my duties and my obligations with my police job, but in my spare time, investing in, in real estate and building wealth for the long term.
0: Now, at that time, Jules, was was Angie uh, working outside the home? Or, you know, I mean, you have three children, so I'm that's a pretty busy mom. I, you know, so what was the scenario then for Angie and you? What Was she working? So or? A-
1: Angie uh, uh, Angie went to work for a while after we had our financial debacle in our early years of investing. Uh, she worked at Scotiabank even though we were doing all our banking at another bank. And uh, she worked for a while, but then when the portfolio got big enough that uh, it was throwing off the same cash that she was earning uh, part-time, she decided to stay home. And I was fully supportive of, of that. And I think the kids really benefited from that.
0: You started investing in real estate. You bought was it a couple of doors up front that you'd gone with a credit card? And because I remember you coming into rain and having that conversation with you, you were really fighting some fires back then and trying to get from under the the pressure of what you had going on. And I don't recall how you resolved that issue. I just recall that you did. And then you got things back on track. Did you break into a a, a specific methodology? And, and of course, in real estate, there's always challenges to face. I mean, gosh, you know, I'm, I'm literally was earlier this morning, you know, going through uh, some stuff on my portfolio and with my banking and, you know, fighting fires, you know, this many years later, there's always a, you know, that's just part of business. I don't look at it as part of real estate that happens in business all the time. But for you, as you started to build your portfolio, was there a, a kind of a rhythm or a methodology that you fell into that, that you used and kind of. F- just kept following all along? Were you joint venturing back then all the time or how were you building your portfolio?
1: Yeah, so uh, we ended up purchasing uh, a fourplex and a couple of duplexes. Those were the ones that kind of went sideways because of poor planning. Now, we sold uh, a couple of those properties at a loss and uh, we had to make a settlement with our creditors. We did that. We had uh, pretty bad credit back then. So I started investing and uh, (laughs) I couldn't qualify mortgages. I couldn't go on title until uh, a certain period of time passed when I completed my settlement with my creditors. And uh, I think it was around 2007, 2008. That's when things started clearing up and I was able to invest uh, some of my own money and start qualifying mortgages again some of the properties that we bought, I had to uh, pay an interest rate of uh, up as high as uh, 12%. Uh, some institutional B lenders gave us 8%. And then after the, the financial crisis uh, hit everybody, that's when things kind of ironically turn around for us. We were finding deals that were phenomenal and we purchased those deals and I was able to finance institutional with institutional lenders at two point nine nine, and you know, less than half of interest rates that I had previously paid in our cash flow uh, increased uh, tremendously. I don't know if that answers your question.
0: You went through the adversity of facing what you had to face and working through your challenges. What was kind of driving? Now, you know, go back to what you what you said about you know that point in your life where you're almost having a nervous breakdown. You trained four guys. Normally, it would be one guy maybe two, you've doubled, tripled that, whatever that might be, which really stretched you. And and the question I have for you is that, you know, when I reflect on a lot of things in my own life is, you know, it is it is truly a case of, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you better, you know, and, and when you were stretched in that time through the police detachment, where you're doing all that training, do you think that served you in terms of your mindset and your confidence or your ability to deal with the kind of pressure that you were facing when you were dealing with the real estate side of it, Jules, because we talked also earlier a little bit is that you and I have a similar pattern. And I know lots of guys where we kind of like to mess things up and go in and fix them, you know, whatever psychological, you know, subconscious, whatever that might be, that's a different conversation. So how did that stretching early on in your life set you up to win? Do you think on your real estate when you were dealing with the pressures and the ongoing pressures of uh, getting it fixed up?
1: I just knew I just knew there was a task to be done, and there's a significant amount of pressure around that. But we don't give up, and we don't give in, and we don't cave. You know, I made an obligation, and I'm going to live up to that. And uh, I think I like to think that I applied to that with uh, the mortgages I sign on nowadays. With the investors that we still have around, we only have two key investors that uh, we kept around. And uh, for the ones that have moved on, I, I'd like to think that uh, you know, in spite of pressures, in spite of uh, uh, things that happen in business, you know, we met those obligations. And uh, I think that uh, goes back to a lot of integrity: doing what you say you're going to do when you say you're going to do it, and following through with that.
0: Now. How much of that was your upbringing? As much as it was tough living on the reserve, your dad being a chief, all of the things that you were dealing with as a kid going to school, how much of your own attitude was developed through your parents, you know, and through the fact that you had that kind of pressure on you? I'm sure there was, you were always under magnifying glass back on the reserve when your dad was chief. So how does that play into your own development?
1: So and I, I remember getting that from my dad. My dad was the uh, sort of the uh, cleric driver of uh, leadership in uh, our region, not just with our First Nation, but with Notre Dame Genard and uh, Manawaki and other Algonquin First Nations in the area. He was the vice president of the Indians of Quebec Association back then. And uh, he he lived by doing what he said he was gonna do. If he said he was going to get a face-to-face meeting with the with the Premier of Quebec, well, guess what? <laughs> he got a face-to-face meeting with the Premier of Quebec. Uh, if he said that uh, he was going to uh, campaign against the separation of uh, Quebec from the rest of the country, that's exactly what he did. And uh, I remember at the time when the QPP showed up at our door and they locked him up, you know, that's, that's what he said he was going to do. And he stuck by that. And he told the officers, he says, Hey, I realized you guys are just doing your job. This is what I said I was going to do. And I did it. So do what you got to do. And, uh, I remember my mom was just mortified <laughs> and, uh, we went to visit him and he was playing cards with the guys and they were smoking cigarettes and having a few laughs, you know, and they kept him in custody uh, I think it was well past midnight after the vote was over, and they realized what the results were going to be anyway. So they said, "Well, okay, uh, Mr. Mackenzie, I guess you can go home. We did not win this one." That was it, you know. But uh, that that experience, although it was it was terrifying for me too. I mean, nobody wants to see their dad arrested. But that that led me to uh, start that philosophy and belief that uh, if you say you're going to do something then you better do it. You better stand up and, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, man up and, you know, follow through.
0: Now you and Angie have through hard work and lots of time spent educating yourselves and surrounding yourself with great people. You know, you've enjoyed a lot of success in the world of investing in real estate, more to come, more to grow, all of the things. And Angie's just always a bright light when I see you and, and, how important is as a couple, how important was it to you, uh, to you as a couple to be aligned? What kind of things did you face as a couple that you had to get through to really make real estate work? You know, in, in, in working with so many real estate investors over the years, I'm often having conversations with people who are, you know, couples who are in the world of investing in real estate. And one of them's onside, one of them's offside, One of them wants to do it. One of them doesn't want to do it. So there's never a full-on agreement that, yes, we need to take this on. And often one will move forward without the blessing of the other. So in my world, I always say we don't have to agree, but we always have to align. We can't not align and not agree because that just doesn't work. And so with you and Angie, you seem to have a space where you're both aligned and agreed that you were going to do it. And how important was that to you as a couple, and the success that you've enjoyed in real estate, Jules? I think that
1: was a hundred percent important. Well, she she initially got me into this habit of reading books and uh, going to seminars and listening to audios. You know, back when uh, you know she got prospected for the Amway business, and uh, I I simply was doing an investigative uh, process when I started educating myself and reading books and listening to audios and studying those things, uh, but we don't make decisions. uh, Well, at least I try hard not to make decisions without her. We both agreed that small multifamily buildings are easier to finance, easier to rent out. And if there's a vacancy, there's still a little bit of cash coming in each month until that vacancy is filled. However, within the last, I don't know, 10 or 12 years, we haven't had a vacancy period. Uh, That's how much demand there is in this market. But we both still read and we still both listen to audios and podcasts and we still do all those kind of things. And we do it. I like to think that we do it together. Although she doesn't come to the RAIN meetings anymore, I could still talk her into coming out to things to uh, see interesting people and learn interesting things.
0: When you look at You know, when you look around now that you've been at this a long time, I know that you've been a source of inspiration and information for other real estate investors. What do you think the difference between investors who are really successful and those who aren't as successful? Do you can you identify a pattern, or when you're talking to somebody, do you go, "Yeah, they're they're going to hit it out of the park," or "These guys are totally off"? Are you able to assess a little bit, or do you see a common thing where? what's the difference between somebody who's going to be successful or not, I guess is the, is the, you know,
1: I know Frank Sinatra has this song. I did it my way. So the common pattern that I see with investors that are not successful is that they're trying to do it their way, or they're trying to take uh, some form of a system or procedures. And they say, well, I'm going to improve on that. I'm going to do this this way. And it's going to be much better. And you know, the whole thing ends up blowing up in their faces. And it's because, You know, they don't uh, take the time to educate themselves. They don't take the time to listen to other people who have been there and their perspective on things because they got this hang up that, uh, well, I can do this so much better because I'm so much smarter and better looking and whatever the case may be. But that's I've seen that reoccur and I can almost see them walking from a mile away that uh, they got this whole thing figured out and they're going to they're going to do this exponentially better than any of us. And I was like, okay, I'll I'll see you in a few months.
0: <laughs> I'll watch from a distance. Do you have a biggest failure that you can think of, a biggest failure that actually turned out to be a blessing in disguise? And this is a, sometimes a tough question, but you know, is there something that you look back on and go, man, I'm glad that screw-up happened?
1: <laughs> oh, man, I can think of so many. Man, I just want to put my... <laughs> I want to put my finger on one. I would say that uh, making a settlement with my uh, creditors was just bloody awful. It was uh, the worst thing ever, and I couldn't qualify mortgages. In uh, two thousand and five, we, uh, in spite of that, we purchased thirty-eight townhouses with uh, six key investors. I raised over a uh, million dollars for the down payment, and I know that people are saying, well, a million dollars is not a lot of money. And i it probably, it's probably not so much nowadays, but back then it was, we purchased these 38 townhouses for 107,000 a door. And, uh, fast forward to, uh, 2015 when, uh, my name was still not on a lot of those titles and I'm all cleared up. I'm all, uh, I have a great credit rating and I have, uh, investors approaching their senior years, that say, hey, listen, I'm about to retire. I'd like to uh, get my money out and get out of this deal. And uh, I worked my tail off in 2015, qualified 11 mortgages, and I refinanced and uh, made a deal with, uh, we had 22 of the 38 homes left because we sold ones and twos over the years. And uh, I made a deal with a subsequent investor to take over 11. I took over 11. I qualified uh, mortgages at awesome rates. And if I hadn't gone through that experience, those things just kind of lined up uh, so nicely as I, as I reflect back on that now. And um, I know we're, we're not here to pitch uh, products or companies, but CIBC is uh, my best friend. And uh, I hope to maintain that friendship for a long time.
0: Now, when you consider that you're, you know, you just talked about that you partnered with somebody who took over 11 doors and you've raised capital in the past, what was your thought process when you were raising capital? How is it that you were able to do that? You know, we often, and I know that you're aware of this, is there's so many people that go, I can't find an investor. I can't find capital. What was the difference, do you think, given what you did versus what you're seeing with those individuals who are saying, yeah, there's no money. I can't find an investor what was it oh, for man. you
1: there's so much there's so much investor capital out there right now without a home it's uh, it's crazy and um i'm still looking for deals to to place that stuff
0: so you've actually right now as we sit here today you've got more capital than you can actually put to work yes and but what was it was it because you it's not like you could hang your hat on this you know early on you couldn't hang your hat on this awesomeness that you were pulling off i mean Shit had hit the fan, you were underwater, some bad deals, bad credit. And so how were you able to, in spite of that, raise capital? What was it? Because I'm not afraid to ask. Nice. I'm not afraid to ask.
1: Hmm. And um fortunately for me, prior to getting involved with the real estate, uh, I was involved with network marketing and I read their books and I studied their courses and I I went to the seminars and I learned how to sell. So I can, I can sell the stake and I can sell the stake quite well because I studied that for a couple of years prior to getting into uh, real estate. And I never forgot those lessons. In fact, I still uh, grab audios from Tommy Hopkins and uh, other sales type uh, materials. And I'll review that so that uh, I could continue to keep up my salesmanship and not be afraid to do the ask. You got to be willing to do the ask. If, if you're not willing to ask, it's not gonna work out so well, you know, and it's a lot easier if you don't ask. If you wanna achieve something, you have to get out of your comfort zone and you have to get into uh, kneecap to kneecap conversations with other people who actually have the capital and you gotta ask. And uh, if that's too hard for you, then I'm sorry. That There's not too much more uh, I personally can do to help you. You know, you're gonna have to get over yourself you know, leave your ego at the door, get your nose in a book, start uh, learning uh, from some successful people at, at seminars and uh, conferences and uh, meetings and do those kind of things, you know, because uh, it's not going to come by osmosis. You actually have to work for this stuff.
0: It's interesting that you, you know, you bring up the ML, uh, MLM, the multi-level marketing training is over the years, I've, you know, time and time again, I've met people who, went down a path of some multi-level marketing something right very few have ever done well in multi-level marketing that I know I actually know a couple who have literally hit it out of the park you know and they're they're MLM guys now and they're literally in that two three hundred thousand dollar a month revenue space like it's it's really amazing what they've done over 10 years having said all that, all of the people that went through the process like you did thought they would do it jumped on board to do it they have no regrets because of that exact thing the ability to network the ability to have conversation the ability to sell yourself the ability to sell anything at that point really it was it was amazing training for them in that context but to your point in an MLM environment you're forced you if even if you're just not going to pull it off you go to those seminars you go to those workshops and you're in it you have to It's hard to stand in a corner when, you know, 100 or 200 other people in the room are lighting it up and at least faking it. Yeah, that's true. Stretching themselves out. So that's very, very interesting. So was there a point for you or was there a can you identify fork in the road moments? Because you've had an interesting journey. And as you sit here today, when you reflect, you and Angie reflect on your lives, was there a fork in the roads? that you can look at and go man we could have gone left but we went right and holy shit are we lucky we went right
1: <laughs> so i could identify two of them and uh, it was back in my opp career about uh, a year before we transferred to the rama area the really area superintendent uh, uh, bob pilon wanted me to become the first uh, indigenous uh, detached commander in uh, moose factory and uh, we went up there <laughs> I called my brother and I said, "Hey man, you gotta help. Uh, you gotta support me on this. I'm about to get promoted, but I gotta sell the idea to uh, to Aunt. I didn't say sell at the time, but that's what I was trying to help him get him to help me to do. And uh, she had taken nursing at Northern College. And I said, to, "Oh, my brother, uh, my brother and I want to do this trip up to Moose Factory to look around and see what's up. And you should bring your resume because they have a hospital on um, Moose Factory Island." and uh, the detachment is in Moosonee on the mainland, and uh, we went up there, and I slowly broke it to her. I said, okay, this is the deal. I'm likely going to get promoted and be the detachment commander in Moosonee in charge of, uh, I, I can't remember if it was 12 or 18 guys that they had working there at the time, and uh, if you get a job at the hospital, you know, we'll be able to sock away a lot of money and be up here for four years and then move out and live the life that we want, where we want. And at the time she looked me in the eyes and she said, well, I wish you luck with your promotion and I really hope it works well for you. And if I'm still single by the time you get out, look me up. And I thought, (laughs) okay, well, I guess this is not going to (laughs) work. So she definitely didn't want to go. So that's, that's uh, the one fork in the road. The other fork in the road was uh, well after I had uh, transferred my employment to uh, back then was called the Mendocino Police, and uh, our first chief of police, he kind of made the decision easy for me, but he really wanted me to be a sergeant and be a, a middle manager for him. And uh, he was a real tyrant and uh, difficult guy to work with and be around. And I knew personally that uh, you know the road guys always uh, last outlast the uh, guy at the top so i i kind of figured that i could i could get promoted and he would probably be around only for maybe another few years because most of those executive type positions are uh, contract positions anyways but uh at the time i i did the acting thing for about a year and then after it was over they you have the review and uh i just told him this is this is not for me but at the same time, I was building a portfolio of uh, real estate investments, and my time was uh, was consumed. So I, I made I made the choice. My fork in the road was not accepting a promotion, so that I could build my real estate portfolio in my spare time.
0: On a day to day basis, so you've you've got a lot of things that you've had going on in your life. You're doing a lot of things, and and how important was it? Now you've got the friends that you have on the force. And I know that in in the past couple of years, you've really taken your fitness to the next level. How important was it in terms of surrounding yourself with a group of like-minded people? I know on your CrossFit training, you've got all of those guys that you, you know, you got you, the people, not just guys, but the people that you hang out with on your CrossFit workouts. And, but in the world of real estate, how important was it to surround yourself with really like-minded individuals and how important were those relationships To you and your success?
1: So with, uh, with my wife, she is very, very supportive. Don't get me wrong. But a lot of times I felt that I was alone in dealing with, uh, tenant struggles, uh, financing challenges and, uh, all around, this can be a real, you know, being a landlord in Ontario can be really, really tough at the best of times. And I just needed somewhere to go, you know, at least once a month (laughs) just to either um, get supported or share some success that I had achieved and hope that that experience uh, helps someone else be supported. And uh, that has worked uh, well for me. That has really served me. Uh, That has uh, prevented me from making uh, silly choices like selling off properties, and just getting out of the business altogether because I was, my feelings were hurt by a tenant and I was so sensitive and pissed off, you know, and not making those irrational type emotional decisions. Uh, and I haven't had to do that because I've been supported.
0: Within RAIN, we're, we're often saying to people, you know, make sure you're sound, you know, you surround yourself with like minded individuals that aren't dragging you down because when you, you know, the, the meetings that we have, the regular member meetings, Are you know, part of that intention aside from education is actually to give people the opportunity to be in the room with others who are doing what they're doing. And we're because we know that in the real world, there's always somebody that's making you wrong for doing whatever you're doing, in this case, investing in real estate. And you know, if you were an MLM guy, people would be making you wrong for being an MLM guy. You know, there's always those dream killers, and you, you know, but because we're talking about real estate. Were you faced with that was your family on side with you in general you know your siblings for example or nieces nephews whatever that might be uncles friends in general were they on side with it or were you did you find yourself being tested by even family or you know your circle of influence outside of the rain room for example
1: So I'm I, as I mentioned I'm the youngest of five and my brother and my three sisters are university educated uh, people and I remember uh, going home after being in the OPP for a couple of years and they're having their intelligent conversation, um, being a little sarcastic. And uh, they're saying, well, Jules is a police officer now and I I guess that's okay. And now uh, fast forward to many years later, my my oldest sister who is a PhD uh, candidate from McGill University is just completely baffled by this thought that I'm gonna purchase these homes with these little apartments in it and rent them out. And oh my God, like what kind of pressure is that? And there's so much liability and, you know, what do you expect to accomplish and uh, how does this fit in with your family life and all these concerns? And uh, I I don't know, man, like it's uh, it's uh, it's one of those things that kind of baffles me. Like, uh, you know, looking back, I wish I would have got a got a some sort of a business degree that I could apply to the business and the investments that I'm doing today, but, uh, it didn't happen that way for me. So I make the best, uh, of what I have, uh, now, but for my, my brother and my, my sisters, you know, they're, they're in retirement. And, uh, you know, unfortunately I, I see that they, they tend to struggle with uh, finances from time to time. I, I purchased a, a vehicle to uh, bail out one of my siblings and, um, Yeah, financial things like that happen for them. And I do my best to help out whenever, wherever I can. But they just uh, didn't understand and they didn't really care to try and understand. And uh, I don't know if that was because it was me, you know, their little brother, or uh, if they just generally had no interest in, uh, in learning how to generate wealth in their spare time.
0: Now you um last time I saw you, I, I don't remember it was in Ontario a month or two ago when we were at a, ma- a meeting and uh, but you had mentioned that you'd had a kind of a cool win because uh, was it one of your kids that bought recently bought a property? I don't remember the, yes, the I'm yeah, like going back in an old memory bank here, but there was a conversation we had, and I know that you were pretty uh, happy and and proud of the fact that the, the kids were able to or one of them. Can you give me a little bit of background of that
1: So uh, my son Andrew. He's the, the middle child, and he's a boy, uh, so he's caught between two uh, two women now. Uh, I feel for him, <laughs> but uh, he's choosing to do the artist uh, lifestyle. So he's in a band. Uh, they get now they they're, they're uh, quite regularly getting gigs at uh, places like Lee's Palace. And uh, uh, it's a popular club in Toronto, an old-time club. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. But uh, they're starting to get uh, recognition for the, the good music that they're, they're playing. But uh, Angie and I have encouraged him to purchase a property because that, uh, if he, in, in this particular case, he purchased a duplex with uh, a granny suite, and he rents out the other two with uh, him and his girlfriend. That uh, kind of offsets their living costs while they're building their uh, their own personal brand. Uh, in this case, it's Andrew and his music, and uh, in his girlfriend's case, it's her her artistry and uh, things that she does. So uh, we helped, obviously, with financial uh, financial assistance, but I also had to help them qualify a the mortgage because uh, <laughs> the qualifications are just. Uh, over the top. And, um, you know, I'm grateful to Home Trust for uh, stepping up to the plate and get helping us to to get finance. And it was uh, a, a great mortgage broker uh, that helped us from Streetwise Mortgages.
0: So, I mean, that's got to feel pretty good as a dad. And, and then to realize that all of the time and energy and the lessons you've learned and the things that you've done, you're able to support your family in a really powerful way in this case getting Andrew a home a uh, place to call home that's got to be uh, that's got to feel pretty good this many years later an indigenous guy off the reserve back to the reserve let's put it that way with all the challenges that you've faced i mean that's quite a quite a story and where you and Angie have come to given your upbringing the background of the things you faced and so you know congratulations on that that's got to feel really good
1: it does. Thank you very much. I, I'm I'm really happy uh, with that. I still am. I'm I'm, I'm just beaming inside, uh, knowing that uh, you know. I wish I would have started this business when I was 22 years old. You know, things uh, things would be like exceptionally awesome. They're awesome right now, but they'd be exceptionally awesome.
0: Yeah. Well, that's a different debate, but because uh, you know, there's a, there's always a place where you know, and this is time and time again, is that I think uh, there's so much to be said. You know, we can sometimes look. I I remember years ago, my wife, Stephanie, once said to me, she goes, "Um, are you happy with where you're at? And this was many years ago. And I said, yeah, I'm really happy with where I'm at. I I think I would have just taken a little different path to get here. And uh, she just, you know, very wisely looked at me and said, yeah, but then you wouldn't be who you are and where you are today. (laughs) (laughs) And I went, oh shit. Yeah. Okay. Well, that (laughs) ended that conversation, but it was, uh, you know, it was one of those things that I remember so well is that we go through what we go through and it's, uh, and if we didn't go through, we wouldn't be who we are and we wouldn't be where we are. So, uh, I don't, I don't tend to reflect on what it could have been, but anyways, that's a whole different conversation. So, so Jules, tell me about, uh, because of the nature of your job, there's, you're kind of into that whole fitness thing right now. You've really turned up the heat on your own physical fitness. What was the kind of motivating, was there a motivating factor for that, or you just wanted to challenge yourself?
1: Well, uh, policing is still a very young man, uh, young man's uh, type job, and I'm not a young man anymore. <laughs> so uh, I know that I have to stay physically fit. Uh, policing in Rama, and I'm only speaking for the area that I police in, it really is uh, 96% pure boredom and 4% pure adrenaline rush. So, when those uh, taxing times happen, you better be ready to react and uh, have all your faculties about you, and uh, have the uh, the energy and the stamina to back it up. And that's uh, why I started looking into. Uh, I got it for years before that. I did uh, half marathons and worked out with weights, but it wasn't really the CrossFit methodology on things. And um, I have arthritis in both knees now, and I knew that I had to do something that would help me with my mobility and my functionality, and that's what uh, functional fitness is all about, and that's what CrossFit is all about, uh, doing things um, on a constantly varied basis that uh, help you to maintain your mobility and functionality, and it's worked out uh, really, really well one of uh, our common friends erwin uh, zito had uh, lost a bunch of weight he had cleared up uh, a skin issue that he had and he was looking really good and i asked him what he did and he went to uh, he he was doing crossfit as well at the same time he said that he went to the Phenom clinic and got tested for food sensitivities and that got me thinking, well, maybe I have some food sensitivities because in spite of all that working out and running, I still had a pretty good punch going. So uh, I went to uh, Phenom, uh, met with uh, one of the uh, naturopathic uh, doctors. They tested me for food sensitivities and I had so many. So right now I'm uh, on the ketogenic diet. I'm uh, participating in, in uh, intermittent fasting. I have a, a short uh, six-hour per day eating window. And then maybe once or twice a week, I'll do a 24 hour fast. My diet mostly consists of uh, meat and vegetables, chicken, fish, steak, and uh, vegetables of varying kind, romaine lettuce, cucumbers, spinach, bell peppers, zucchinis, those, those kind of things. And uh, that's just until my my gut issues uh, heal a bit, and maybe I can reintroduce some foods, but uh, I'm off dairy, I'm off carbohydrates, I'm off uh, breads with highly refined flours. I'm I'm off those kind of things, and uh, I'm down to 225 pounds. I was uh, 225 pounds when I joined the OPP in 1989, and I haven't weighed that much or that little since, in the height of uh, my my uh, weight gain, my obesity, I was 275 pounds. After CrossFit, I went to 265. After going on the ketogenic diet last year in November, I'm down to 225, and I feel feel awesome, feel amazing. I'm competing with my son on a team. Uh, we're going out to Collingwood for the UG Series, which is kind of a CrossFit uh, – I like to call it a CrossFit powwow. and It's uh, a fun competition for amateurs – Masters athletes and uh, RX athletes in in uh, CrossFit. The RX athletes are the the, the elite uh, athletes, and there's going to be a bunch of those guys that are competing as well.
0: So, since you changed your diet, was there any noticeable difference? I mean, other than you've leaned out, you look great. Was there any shift? You know, in the inflammation of, let's say, your knees or other joints, did you notice some yeah, of that Yeah, my pain knees feel in?
1: amazing. I had been after my surgeries in 2011 and 2012. I was prescribed with offloader braces and they're carbon fiber braces that hold my knee in perfect alignments. Uh, unfortunately, wearing those things for as long as I did caused a significant amount of atrophy in, in both my knees. So I went for a consultation on knee replacement surgery. And Dr. David Backstein at Mount Sinai said, so let me get this straight. You want knee replacement surgery so you can stop wearing your offloader braces? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, why don't you stop wearing your offloader braces and start training without them? Uh, maybe go back, get some physiotherapy to to start you off. And that's what I did. I went to uh, sports medicine here in Aurelia, and I did a physiotherapy program to get me out of my uh, offloader braces. I've been offloader brace free since uh, January, and I feel great. My uh, atrophy has subsided. I'm starting to build up strength again. Uh, I did lose a significant amount of strength after my weight loss, uh, mind you, it was 40 pounds. My CrossFit coaches are saying, "Man, don't even worry about that." He said, "Your uh, my muscle ups and my pull ups have gone up. My all around my gymnastics and calisthenics have improved." My uh, cardiovascular capacity has improved. The amount of energy that I have throughout the day has gone up uh, significantly. My significant other says I'm a lot more present than I had been. And uh, I feel great. It's just it's just awesome.
0: So this really is a case of we talk about it often, but it's just in our face right now, which is regardless of your wealth, without your health, it doesn't matter. You know, there's oh, nothing, you know, so even quality of life you know, when you have the wealth, if your physical health is not there to support it, then you're not really there to enjoy the lifestyle. It would be far better to have that lifestyle and that health, you know, along with the wealth that you've created and worked so hard for. So Jules, as we wind down our podcast, and we could go on a lot because there's a lot of different directions we can go with you. You're pretty diverse in all of the topics that you've got but we we are running a little bit low on time, but I'm going to go to uh, some rapid fire questions. My favorite part, one of my favorite parts of the show always. Cool. So what's the book you're reading that you like? What's your favorite book that you like to even gift? I like to gift Don Campbell's
1: book, Real Estate Investing in Canada. But right now I'm uh, rereading uh, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. I get together with uh, my son and my youngest daughter and... Uh, angie and actually andrew's girlfriend has jumped in with us too and we're we're all reading that book together and discussing uh, some of the lessons that we're taking away from that book and we're turning that into a practice uh usually once or twice a month where we get together and discuss the book that we're reading and we're all we all read the same book so right now it's think and grow rich
0: so you got a little bit of a book club coming going on with your family Yeah, yeah a little in-family
1: book
0: club going. That's cool. That's a great idea. Stephanie and I will sometimes, uh, uh, when we stop long enough, we'll uh, sometimes read to each other. So we'll pick up a book. If I'm reading a book, short of it being fiction, but any nonfiction stuff that I read, and we do both read a lot of nonfiction, at any given time we'll sit and say, why don't you read me the chapter? Where are you at? And if you're reading anyways, why don't you read out loud to me? So <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of like a, a Stephanie audiophile or a Patrick audiophile. So I prefer to read actually than to be read too. I, I digest better that way. I can be read too, but I'm likely to nod, <laughs> nod <off. laughs> So I'm usually the reader, but uh, I do listen to Stephanie read to me and that's good too. What's a job that you still do even though you hate it, but you do it because you're good at it? Do you have any of those? Yeah, uh, there's
1: uh, five properties small multifamily properties in not so good neighborhoods that are
0: turning around, but I still cut the grass. Oh, and you don't know why, but you just do it anyways.
1: I know why, because I've hired other guys
0: to do that in the past and they've uh,
1: always uh, fucked it up on me. So (laughs) I just took it back.
0: Well, with that statement, that's a perfect segue into my next question. What's your favorite swear word? Fuck. Yeah,
1: fuck it, it describes. It's like an adjective. It yeah. describes a person,
0: a place, or a thing. Yeah. If you, those who use it use it, those who don't don't. It's like there's there's no defining line. There's or, no happy medium there. There, at all. Or there isn't. You're either in or you're out. Do you have a favorite inspirational quote? Back in Miami days, I
1: heard a guy say, "Have fun, make money, and make a
0: difference." Hmm, that's a good one. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the gates? Oh, Jules,
1: come on in. Don't worry about that place. Forget <laughs> about that place. Nobody gets out of there alive.
0: <laughs> Room, desk, or your car. What do you clean first? Room. Make the <laughs> freaking bed in the morning, please. Oh, that's your thing. Hey, good for you. Favorite tune? Do you have one?
1: Favorite tune past um, Standing on on Top of the World by Van Halen. And that's the from their OE828 oh, uh, days with uh, Sammy Hagar. Yeah. Uh, currently, there's uh, Old Town Road. I, I really, I really like just kind of bouncing to that, and I got it going on in my head right now.
0: <laughs> yeah, because I can see you. He's actually bobbing his head right now, ladies and gentlemen. You have a favorite movie?
1: Uh, Star Wars. I really related to uh, Mark Hamill's uh, character way back in the day because he was looking uh, beyond the horizon, wondering if there's anything out there for him. Right at the same time, when I was doing that with my life.
0: Hmm. Interesting. And Jules, what are you grateful for? Oh, I'm grateful. Oh, jeez, I'm grateful
1: for Ange uh, for sticking by me even when she shouldn't have.
0: Hmm. I'm grateful for you to know you to have you on the show today, Jules. I too am <laughs> grateful for my uh, my bride, uh, Stephanie, and uh, I'm grateful to have this uh, medium called a podcast to be able to share these stories with listeners much to learn
1: this is awesome patrick thank you very much uh you've always been a a mentor uh of mine from afar and uh, i look forward to for that to
0: continue thanks jules have a good one my friend okay see you later ladies and gentlemen thank you for listening if you found value in the podcast please take the time to rate and review and share with others share with your friends as it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener. if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at CEO at raincanada.com. That's CEO at reinCada.com. I look forward to hearing from you and until next time, Patrick O.